Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. I want to thank so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. We're going to be talking with Dr. Brooke Mobley in a couple of moments. Tips for those who are new to caregiving. And we're going to talk as well a little bit about uh, her medical specialty, working as a hospitalist and what that means. Carol Zernio is nationally known for her work in gerontology, named one of the nation's top 50 influencers in aging by Next Avenue. She also has a master's degree in social gerontology, and serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And, and Carol, when it comes to caregiving, we were talking last week with Tifa Snow. Uh, the fact is, whenever we speak on Caregiver SOS on air, we know there's somebody tuning in who is brand new to caregiving. That's right. And oftentimes caregivers are, quote, born at a hospital, right? It's that moment in the hospital when everything goes south. It's a stroke. Uh, life changes. You get a diagnosis. Um, and there, that's the moment that they're going to have to make decisions uh, and, and really come to grips with a new reality. A decision that changes almost the rest of their life. Uh, Dr. Brooke Mobley is an associate medical director for Optum. She earned her Doctor of Osteopathy degree from Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, completed her internal medicine residency in nephrology fellowship at Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware. Dr. Mobley is board certified in internal medicine. She serves as a hospitalist at Optum Pasco Hospitalist in Tampa, Florida. Dr. Mobley, it is so great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think the geriatric population is uh, a subset of people who have been overlooked. Um, their care is more specialized than people um, take credit for. And I think we're only starting to understand the importance of it as our baby boomers are becoming the next generation of geriatricians. And we know the baby boomers are one of the largest populations that we have. And so I'm just glad that not only the organization of United Healthcare, Optum and WellMed, but the world is starting to look at um, the geriatric population with the new scope. And along with that, you have to look at the people who are taking care of these geriatric population, whether they are taking care of them remotely. A caregiver does not have to be someone who is living in your home. It could be a family member who lives somewhere else, but is still still in charge of you getting your groceries, still in charge of making sure you make it to doctor's appointments, making sure you get the hygiene products you need, the clothing you need. They come in and make sure that your medications are not only purchased, but they are in the correct Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, pill set. So I think when we define caregivers, it's beyond the scope of just someone who lives and cares for someone in their home. It is that family member and or friend who is the primary caregiver for someone else, regardless of if they live in the same home or not. And they're just as important. You know, as Carol pointed out, uh, very often we don't choose and plan to be a caregiver. It falls in our lap. We get a call your grandma's in intensive care. We need you here right now. 
and suddenly your life changes overnight. What do you need to know and how do you prepare for that? Dr. Mobley? So there is no preparation you can really do. But when we think about as we age, even entering the age of 65, having a living will is important. Designating who's going to be that person to make decisions for you if you ever get to a point where you're incapacitated or unable to make the medical decisions for yourself. And then preparing that person to who they are, making sure they know where your insurance information is, making sure they know where your medications are, where maybe your bills are, because sometimes you get put in a catastrophic situation where going back home isn't an option at all. And you may have to go to an assistant living facility or stay long-term care at one of the nursing homes. And one of the ways they determine if you qualify financially is having some of those financial documents. So it's not just knowing what somebody's medical history is, having something print out with your medications, having your allergies and past medical history printed out. And so that this designated person has that information, but also knowing where your finances are in case that is necessary to determine where your next step is going. Well, that's and then so from important. an emotional standpoint, you have to have these hard conversations to see if somebody is truly emotionally capable of being this person for you. The same person who knows how to handle your budget and teach you about financial literacy may not be the person who is empathetic enough to be your caregiver. So you have to talk to your family and friends ahead of time and unfortunately anticipate the big, the bad, and the ugly to help determine who is going to fit that position uh, the best way, not only for you, but for themselves. Because being a caregiver is a burden sometimes to even to the the person who is functioning for you and helping you out. So you want to make sure that that person emotionally, physically, and mentally can take care of it. So maybe your daughter, who is a single mom with three children, may not be the best person to be your caregiver. Maybe your son, who is married and has no children, may be someone who has the better resources for you to get the care that you need, but so that we're not now making someone else overburdened and sick. We see so many caregivers who spend so much of their time, money, and effort into helping someone else that they end up sick and in the hospital. Because we all know stress is the number one cause of everything, including death. And so it's about not only being able to take care of that person who needs you, but taking care of yourself. Hold that thought. I'm going to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, with Dr. Brooke Mobley. She's down in Tampa, Florida, and we're talking about tips and info the first-time caregiver may need. Carol? Well, I was just thinking how important what Dr. Mobley said, um, that not everybody is the, you know, is, is cut out to be a caregiver or, you know, that they can have different roles because, you know, oftentimes you might have somebody that's a relative or not taking care of your finances. You may never have had a good relationship with your daughter and moving in with her is not going to make that relationship better. Uh, There may be too much water under the bridge for that. And so as a caregiver, whether, you know, maybe mom doesn't have the capacity to make that decision, maybe she does. But, you know, that's something that as a family sitting down and, and kind of thinking about it, or calling in uh, somebody else, you know, because the messenger always gets shot. Uh, 
but calling in either a geriatric care manager, your social worker, somebody else who can help you sort out those decisions um, if you've got a family dynamic that is not conducive to sitting down and making decisions. You know, Dr. Mobley, you you gave us a checklist uh, of all the things to think about when you become a caregiver. Uh, Is that printed out somewhere? Can you go to the, uh, well, there aren't bookstores anymore, but go online, top 10 things caregivers should know when they start to be a caregiver. So I don't know if they have it phrased quite like that, but um, the more we know about caregiver burden and the more we realize and see the longevity of our geriatric patients outliving um, even some of their own children, we understand the importance of caregiver, and so has our nation. So there are always local um, state resources for caregivers, but nationally, the AARP has not only a hotline, but they have um, a website in which they have a lot of wonderful information for caregivers. I know the majority of our PCPs and our WellMed and our Optum offices also have literature and resources for caregivers, um, the same way that they have social workers for the patients. They also have social worker and case management for the caregivers as well. We are learning the importance of not only taking care of the patient, but taking care of the people around them who help take care of them is just as important. And so there are resources all over, um, printed resources, electronic resources, and then hotlines nationally and locally for people to um, get the resources, the help, and the information that they need to be the best caregiver they can be. And AARP has a national number actually that you can use as a caregiver. And then they will also um, give you uh, links to some of the local ones. And the the resource line for AARP nationally is 1-877-333-5885. And it's toll free. They also have it in Espanol. 888-971-2013. So that is the number for both English and Spanish-speaking caregivers. Hey, you know what new-time caregivers need more than those numbers? They need your home phone number because you're the resource that has all this information. You also need a subscription to Massage Envy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's right. That's now, an a- excellent recommendation. As a hospitalist, Uh, You get involved in these issues. What do you do as a hospitalist? So hospitalist medicine is broken down into two entities. You have a true hospitalist who is uh, the physicians and or nurse practitioners, PAs, who sees the patients while they're doing their hospital hospital admission. So seeing them from the time they're admitted in the emergency department or directly admitted from the primary care doctor's office all the way to the day that they discharge to whatever that home entity is. And in a lot of cases in the geriatric population, it's going to be to a skilled nursing facility. And these are acute rehab facilities where these patients get more um, physical therapy, occupational therapy, for which they've been deconditioned just based on being in the hospital. For stroke patients, speech therapy is also very important, especially if they've had any dysphagia or aphasia, uh, meaning that their um, ability to talk isn't as clear or their ability to eat and swallow. 
is not as effective as it once was. And then in the skilled nursing facility, you have what's called a sniffist. And that is what I primarily do. I have been both a hospitalist and a sniffist, but now I am a pure sniffist in which I am the physician that is rounding and seeing the patients in the skilled nursing facilities. And in this entity, I deal a lot with primary caregivers, transitioning family members and friends to being primary caregivers, transitioning once independent patients to being dependent on family, friends, and or assisted living facilities. And so a lot of my time is less clinical and more about establishing what is in the best interest of the patient long-term and making sure that they have the resources they need, making sure expectations are communicated clearly, not only to them, but also their family and friends, and making sure that collaboratively, we are making what is going to be probably one of the hardest decisions the family will ever have to make together and do it in what is in the best interest for all parties involved. As theoretically, it sounds amazing for all parents to be able to go home and live with their children. As Carol said, that is not always the logistics that are possible. I have patients who have outlived all of their children and some of their grandchildren, and a lot of their grandchildren are distant in other states, and their primary caregivers are neighbors that they've known for 50 years. And in either case, no one is less or more important than the other. Just making sure whoever is involved in the care of that patient, be them by blood or by choice, that they have all the information they need to make the best decisions for themselves as well as for the patients. We are only as strong for people as we can be for ourselves. Don't go anywhere. We're going to come right back to you. And and a lot of what I'm hearing uh, is you're a doctor with a lot of social work expertise on top of that. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver (laughs) SOS on air. We're talking about tips for new time, first time caregivers. Our co-host Carol Zerniel is here. We appreciate you being with us here on Caregiver SOS on air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. It's a fabulous conversation with Dr. Brooke Mobley and Carol Zerniel, our co-host. I'm Ron Aaron. Dr. Mobley talking about what first-time caregivers should know and how they learn it, talking about her experience as a hospitalist and as a sniffist, a skilled nursing facility uh, physician working in, in a skilled nursing facility. Carol Zerniel, you got your hand up. I do. You know, I'm, I'm curious. What advice would you give family members, caregivers, um, for someone staying in a hospital, sort of do's and don'ts, and in a nursing facility, do's and don'ts? So um, first and foremost, be patient, right? Be patient with the patient, no pun intended, um, and be patient with yourselves. First and foremost, especially the older we get, um, 
the easier it is for us to be off of our equilibrium. So things that didn't cause confusion um, or disorientation to us in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, now can do that in our 60s and 70s. And a patient with a urinary tract infection can easily uh, become confused to the state of delirium even after the urinary tract infection is diagnosed and treated with medication. So first and foremost, be patient. Your body doesn't heal as fast as it used to. Um, your family member might not be responding to you the way that they do. But in preparing for anyone going to the hospital, it's important to have that checklist. Know what medications you're on. Have that printed somewhere. Your allergies, your past medical history, what surgeries you've had. Who are the doctors that you see on a regular basis and their phone numbers, primary care doctor, cardiologist, ophthalmologist, if that's someone that you see. It's always important to have a DNR form if that is something that you have decided to go with. If you've decided that you do not want to be resuscitated, that's important to go with you. If you have any living will, that should also go with you every time you go to the hospital. And it may seem like an overkill, but that emergency room visit in which you thought you just had a headache could easily be an intracranial bleed and something could occur and you're now confused and disoriented and unable to tell the people who need the information where they can locate the information. So have it printed somewhere, put it in one of those little waterproof binders like you did back in high school and college and make sure that that information goes with you every time you go to any doctor's office, any ER or any elective procedure. Make sure that you're talking to the family members who are responsible for you so that they know what your wishes are, so they know what kind of things you would want done for you in the hospital, so they know that if you were on a ventilator, that you would only want to be on there for a short period of time. And if they couldn't wean you, then you would want to be off of it. Or if you say... I want to be on it. And if I have to be traked, then trake me. So these are conversations that are necessary for us to have prior to being sick. Because the better we pair, pre prepare for it beforehand, the better we can handle those things if and when they occur. And if the patient doesn't want to talk about it uh, and the caregiver can't get the information, how do you wean it out of them? So sometimes it's great to just have conversation. You don't have to necessarily bring it up and say, let's talk about what you want if you're dying in the hospital. No, you can just be watching the daily soaps and maybe your soap star goes into a coma you just, and you say, man, if I was ever in a coma, I don't know if I would want to live like that and just have those general conversations to at least spark the conversation with the people you are most comfortable with. Of course, anything that is going to be a document used in a hospital needs to be a legal document and signed, notarized, things of that nature. But to start the conversations sometimes makes it easier to have have those more serious and legal conversations to have. It should also be information that your primary care doctor has as well. But just being open enough to talk to this person about maybe the things you want, bring it up in casual conversation, be lighthearted with it. Then maybe you can get the information that you need to be able to do the next steps necessary legally. Yeah. It, I mean, what I'm hearing you say is I need to be way more organized than I am right now uh, in terms of getting everything in order. But it's great advice when we when we think about um, like, let's think about Michael Jackson or Prince, people who, you know, 
went into a hospital, had a, a medical situation or died younger and unexpectedly, they left a mess, right? Because I, it listen, was- Listen, I'll tell you, we're talking about the elderly population, but it's something that is necessary for all adults who can make that conversation and make those decisions. I know I just went to see my primary care doctor for an annual visit. And they're like, Dr. Mobley, we don't have an advanced directive on file for you. And my first thought process was as a human, well, I don't need that. I'm not dying anytime soon, but we never know. And I am a single mom of an eight-year-old. And if something happens to me, I need people to know what's going to happen to her, who will have short-term custody versus long-term custody. Where are the insurance policies that will eventually make her a very rich rich woman? I am probably worth more, not on earth, than I am on earth financially, but neither here nor there. Those are important things to have. There are young women who go in to have a child and die during childbirth. So as much as it's something we discuss with an elderly population, it's decisions and conversations that you should be having from the time you turn 18 or have any kind of assets. And especially if you have children, young children who will need to be taken care of. You know, I'm thankful my PCP hounded me uh, to get end of life documents done, which I finally did important. And the more people encourage us to do it, the more often we do it. And things that are most annoying to us, that song that comes on the radio over and over again that you despise, but you know every word of, sometimes the most annoying things are the things that we remember, are the things that we make sure we take care of. If for no other reason, then we don't want you to ask us again. If that is a reason to get it done, The goal is taken care of. We all win at the end. So I'm glad that my PCP literally hounds me about it every time I go as well. Well, I'm curious, Dr. Mobley, because you do work in skilled nursing facilities. I'm assuming that some of your patients decide not to go home. They really can't stay in their own home or with, they need 24-hour care. They need some skilled nursing care. So what do you see in a nursing home? How is it different being a family member with a loved one in a nursing home versus caring for someone at home? So um, it all depends on the severity of the patient and their orientation, because there are different levels of things. You can have something like independent living, which I call it college dorms for geriatric patients. So they have their own kitchen. It's usually a one bedroom or studio, but they do have common areas. They do have activity centers. And so these are people who are oriented, but maybe just financially, it doesn't make sense to live in this big house. Or maybe they're in early stage dimension. For the most part, they can take care of themselves with no issues, but have some issues here and there where they just didn't feel comfortable living alone. Then you have something called an assisted living facility where you still have some autonomy and independence, but there is nursing staff available for you 24-7. They give you your medications. They prepare your meals. Again, they have the common areas. There are other people living in these areas with you. And then you have something called memory units. They can be in assisted living facilities or in nursing homes. And then you have long-term care in the nursing homes. And each level is elevated a little more based on what your needs are mentally and physically. It is important, even in these facilities, for family members and friends to come as often as possible. It is important to have pictures up or say they are someone who likes cats. 
cats in the Navy, per se. <laughs> you have pictures of cats all over the place. Maybe buy some stuff animal cats for them to have. Have the things that remind them of their family and friends, things that are familiar to them, make them feel the most comfortable, make them feel at home in a place that is not necessarily their home. And so those are all going to be important. Bring their favorite candies, their favorite foods, as long as it's in accordance to their diet, if they're diabetics. But just the things that they can enjoy to remind them of home so that they're comfortable and so that they don't necessarily feel institutionalized. When a nursing home feels like a nursing home, you don't get the best out of the patient. They become depressed. They become inactive. And when those things happen, you are almost guaranteed to see them dwindle in their health. So you want them to stay active. You want them to feel as much autonomy as possible. And that's why it's important to understand the different levels to living facilities outside of living on your own or living with family and making sure that your family member or yourself are going to the one that you need. If you are someone who can live in independent living, you should not be at an ALF. You should be in an independent living facility. You should have as much autonomy as you can handle because what we have learned is the more we use our brain, the less we lose. Hey, you've been a great guest. And uh, I have to tell you, we've learned so much in talking to you for this half hour. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Dr. Brooke Mobley, and uh, as I say, we've learned a lot about sniffists and hospitalists and a whole lot more. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you so much for being with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. Executive producers for Caregiver SOS On Air are Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron. Our associate producer is Christy Romero. I'm Ron Aaron. We'll see you next week on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.